Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. If you're able, would you please stand with me for the reading of God's word? Hear the word of the Lord. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength, and all of your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to, be, to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him, bound up his wounds, pouring oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be the neighbor to the man who fell to the robbers? And he said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning. Merry Christmas. I told you I get to say that all month, all right? We're getting closer. I'm excited about it. Uh, my name's Court. I'm, I'm one of the pastors here at the church. If it's your first time, I want to say thank you so much for making us a part of your week. And hopefully someone has grabbed you, introduced themselves to you, and let you know a little bit about who we are and what we're trying to do here uh, as a church, uh, and if not, I hope that someone does, and you can kind of hear a little bit more about who we are. Uh, but like Scott said, we are uh, in the Advent season, and, and we're in a, a sermon series called God's Greatest Gift, and so we've been talking about and celebrating the generosity of God, which is uh, most displayed in the, the sending or the giving of his only son in the Christmas season. And so last week, we discussed what, what's kind of the starting line of generosity. We, we talked about how, in light of God's generosity, what should our lives look like? And so we talked about what covenant giving is and, and what that might look like for uh, the Christian. And I don't have time to really recap it, but if you get a chance, you can kind of go back and listen to the podcast. We have it on the website. have it in, I think, iTunes maybe. Uh, but anyway, you can listen to that. Uh, but this morning, what I want to do is I want to start to work outward from that principle. So if, if there's a foundation laid of regular, cheerful, sacrificial giving of our first fruits of our finances as a Christian, what happens is the door of the heart then swings open to a world of opportunities to be generous. Um, and what, what I want to do right off the bat is say there's a common misconception that if I am that regular, cheerful, sacrificial giver to the local church court, I won't be able to be generous in these other ways that I'd like to be generous. I won't have the finances to do so. And the truth is, uh, the statistics say that's not true. The statistics say that actually people that are generous in that way are actually overly generous in every other way, uh, more so because they have that principle of generosity. and It kind of opens the door for generosity. Number two, um, 
the Bible actually says that that's not true. A couple of texts, like Proverbs 11 says this, one man gives freely and yet gains even more. Another withholds unduly but comes to poverty. Or 2 Corinthians 9, 6 says, remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. So the Bible tends to say that as we give, God continues to pour in more, that we might be generous and abundantly generous in a myriad of ways, not just one. And so what I want to talk about is as that foundation is laid of generosity in the heart of the believer, how then does it work outwardly to more and more opportunities? Uh, because, because giving is a worshipful orientation of the heart and because worship naturally overflows, giving will overflow. When you're generous as a principle, then you will be generous in every area of your life. So what does that look like? Uh, so before I get going, I want to pray two things. Uh, this morning, we're going to be talking about generosity to the hurting and the helpless, to the needy. Um, and I want to pray two things before we hop into the text. Number one, uh, it's Advent, right? And so there's two things that we celebrate during Advent. First and foremost, we celebrate the first coming, the initial incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is why uh, many of us, we have the manger scenes in our house, or we have you know, the, the, the storybooks that we teach our children about the magi or the wise men, depending upon if you want your kids to believe in magic and stuff like that, uh, whatever it may be. Um, and, and we have all these uh, things uh, celebrating around the manger scene, the Bethlehem scene, right? Uh, and that's because we're celebrating the first coming of Jesus. But Advent also represents this longing expectation for the second coming of Christ. Advent's this time where we look forward to Jesus' return. And so here's what I want to do. The whole reason that I am able to preach this sermon today is because we're still waiting on the second coming. Not just because... Uh, the gospel itself is going forward and we're all waiting for Jesus' return, but because hurting and helpless people didn't exist before the fall. It was not God's original intent when he created man, although we have to uh, trust in God's sovereign hand in allowing these uh, things into our lives, that God's shalom, his peace, presided over all of the earth. There was no hurting people. There were no helpless people. There were no victimized people. There were no robbers uh, in the Garden of Eden. And now here we stand and we hear a story from Jesus where he tells about a man who was beaten half dead and robbed. And so as we talk about the need to be generous toward hurting and helpless people, what I want to orient our hearts toward, and I think that we're not necessarily this way, uh, maybe it's because of some of the conveniences that we have, is that our first response to this shouldn't be how can we fix the problem, but Lord, come quickly so that you'll fix the problem ultimately. That longing, Jesus' return, because here's why. What I know about you and what I know about me is that most of us are living our lives in such a way where we think if we just tweak certain things about ourselves or tweak certain things about our circumstances, everything will be made perfect. If I just would tweak a little bit, I'd be more pretty. If I just tweaked a little bit, I'd be more handsome. If I just tweaked a little bit, my marriage would be right. And if I just tweaked, my job would be right. And then I'd wake up one morning, and I could breathe out of both nostrils, and I'd go to work, and my boss would be like, you are amazing. I'm glad we hired you. And then you'd go home, and every red light would turn green. You'd come home, and your wife would be like, my husband. Your children would be like, father, I'm so glad that you're home. Please sit with us. You would preside over dinner, and you would eat a hearty meal that was tasty and not get fat. And everything would be right, you know, if you could just tweak the recipes right. And the thing is, are you exhausted by that yet like I am? The, tr the truth of the Bible tells us that is not the way in which things are going to be made right. Our pursuit of tweaking the broken system is not the way. But Jesus' ultimate return is when he will set everything right. He will right every wrong. And so Advent's the time where we humbly come and say, I'm not God, but Jesus, come quickly. 
we long for you. And I'd like that to be our first orientation. Now, as we sit in tension of the already not yet kingdom, though, the second prayer I want to pray is, Lord, until you do come, help us. Holy Spirit, push aside our default of our heart, which is what? Self-preservation, so that we can be generous and meet the needs. And, and may your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. May it be regular in our lives that when the needy and the helpless and the hurting come our way, we give them a glimpse of the coming kingdom through our generosity. But the only way we do that is I think if we pray and say, God, uh, you got to do something supernatural in our hearts. It's just not our bend. It's just not our natural inclination. We need the Lord to help us be this way. So let's pray those two things. And then we'll hop into the text, okay? So if you will, pray with me too. You can bow your heads, pray with me silently, aloud. You get too loud, an usher will choke, hold you, and take you out of here. But let's pray together, nonetheless. I'm joking about that. If you're a guest, I apologize ahead of time for the rest of this sermon. Father, we love you, and we stand in complete awe of your generosity. Thank you that we breathe in air that is your air that you've graciously given. We stand our feet upon an earth that you created out of your generosity and giving. And Lord, we confess to you that the brokenness of the world is very real, present, and hard. We confess to you, Lord, that there is all around us hurting and helpless people. And we confess to you, Lord, that there are those of us in this room that feel very much so that that describes us. Lord, we, rather than trying to fix it and immediately rush to being God, we cry out to you, Lord Jesus, come quickly. We long for you to make everything right that we can't make right. We confess to you that no politician is going to fix what you've promised that you will fix. We confess to you, Lord, that no amount of good works that we could conjure will make right the chaos that has been made wrong by Satan's sin and death. And we look forward, Lord, to the day where you will return and we will see you as you are. We long for the day when the new Jerusalem will stand as a monument and a reminder of not just your creative intention, but your gracious purposes for us. Until that day comes, Lord Jesus, we ask, we want to be your children living in a kingdom of darkness, but living as citizens of a kingdom of light. We want to live our lives in a way that every good work that comes across our path, we are able to walk in it by grace. Open our hearts to generosity, Lord, because we confess to you our natural bend is to be closed off and self-preserving and maybe even clutching to the, the likes of greed in our hearts. So, Lord, we confess to you that so that you can open our hearts and hands freely. And as we go to your word, speak truth that only you have so that we can experience what maybe only we need uniquely in the room right now. We trust you, Lord, and we pray these things in Jesus' good name. Amen. Okay, so this morning we're going to talk about a well-known parable. Uh, this parable is called The Good Samaritan. Uh, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Uh, and it does two things. The parable answers uh, who is your neighbor, so who are you supposed to love, and it also says how are we supposed to love our neighbors. So one's like explicit, the lawyer asks, who's my neighbor? Jesus not only says this is who your neighbor is, but they say, Jesus implicitly says this is how love looks towards your neighbor. 
But the parable also does another thing. It, it, it cuts through to two competing responses that we often have to the call of generosity. Those two competing responses are this. When someone or the Lord himself calls us to be generous, we either justify ourselves or we are moved with compassion to the need. The lawyer here, when he's asked Jesus, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says to him, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's good for us at Providence. We say love God, love people a lot. We say that all the time, right? That's what Jesus answers here. I love that the lawyer passes right beyond love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Like, he's like, I got that. Okay, first time, no. I mean, first of all, you don't got that. But he just passes by and says, well, who's your neighbor? And it says, seeking to justify himself, he asks this question. So what he's really after here is he's asking a question in order to justify what he feels perhaps convicted for. Have you ever asked a question, a clarifying question, in the hopes that you would get a different answer? Anybody? That's called marriage, by the way. If you're not married, <laughs> let me give you a couple of examples. My wife says, Jonas needs a bath. When is the last time he had a bath? <laughs> you guys know what I'm asking there? I'm asking a clarifying question in hopes that she would say, well, I gave him a bath yesterday. I guess he's not that dirty. I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, I agree with you. <laughs> How about this one? Did you mow the lawn, baby? Well, the front or the back lawn? My clarifying question is, hopefully she says the front or the back, but my, I didn't mow both, clearly, right? See, we ask these clarifying questions in hopes to get a different answer. That's what the lawyer's doing here, in hoping that maybe he can justify himself, because Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. It's like, well, who's your neighbor, really? Now, what Jesus does here, I'm just giving you fair warning. He just, he doesn't even answer. He just kicks off into a story. When Jesus does that, abort the mission. Just walk away right there. You have lost this battle. And he does this often. Jesus is asked a pointed question. He says, well, let me tell you a story. And that's what happens here. Actually, he doesn't even say, let me tell you a parable. He just goes off. A man was traveling down to Jericho. And I loved it. Like, Scott pulled me, pulled me aside behind <laughs> in the office afterwards. Like, do you not feel like that was a Charlie Daniels band lyric? Like, devil went down to Georgia. Jesus just goes right down. A man went down to Jericho. You know, like, starts telling a story. It's kind of how it feels. Um, he gives a descriptor of a man who's loving his neighbor in need with an extravagant generosity. And then, and then what Jesus does is he juxtaposes that against two other men who ignore the needy man. Now, next week, we're going we're gonna to go to parable of the Good Samaritan again, but we're going to take uh, a little bit of a different angle from what's happening here. But I just want to make mention of this. The two men that ignore the needy man are people that this lawyer would have assumed are actually good, godly, generous, loving, neighbor-loving people, and they ignore the man in need. And then Jesus simply asks another question to the lawyer and says, hey, which one really loved his neighbor? Okay. So here's what I want to do. Let's go through this text and kind of pick out how is Jesus calling uh, us to love our neighbor, and what does it say about generosity? So let's start here. We'll start in verse 39 of chapter number 10, I believe. I'm sorry, 29 of chapter number 10. It says this, but he, desiring to justify himself, that's the lawyer, to Jesus, he said, who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. That's a bad day. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Okay, so the priest, good news, right? Oh, a priest is here. The guy's hurting. He's bleeding. He's about to die. The priest showed up. Oh, God has provided. Nope, he just passes right by. Other side of the road. Okay. Jesus goes on. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to that place and saw him, passed by. On the other side. It's good news. A Levite, a, a, a fellow Israelite tribe 
of Levi. This is the tribe of the priests. So, so come on, this guy's going to help out, right? Passes by on the other side. Verse 33, but a Samaritan. This is a guy that this, the lawyer would not have assumed would stop, okay? As he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. And he went to him and he bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Okay, let's pause. So the Samaritan stops what he's doing, sees the man for what's happening, crosses the street, and he begins to bind the man's wounds as he's bleeding out. So this is like a triage moment. This guy's going to die. He's, he's binding up the wounds. There's a very real physical component to this. Um, and I think that Jesus is clearly depicting here that generosity and love that, that produces generosity looks like us meeting physical needs. I do believe that. But I also want to mention here that maybe Jesus is actually alluding to something more than just, hey, if you see someone who's beat up, you should bandage them. Because I do think we probably should do that. Like if, most of us, if we, you see a car accident and you're the first one there, right, you stop and try to help. I would hope that you do, all right? If you don't, let's talk afterwards. I think that's like a basic human instinct to say, I want to help out and figure out, is everybody okay? But I think Jesus is going a little bit further here than just the physical needs. Maybe he's asking the question, is there a man or woman in life that has not been wounded by the broken world that we live in? Ask yourself that question. When you think of woundedness, when you think of brokenness, when you think of being affected negatively at a soul level, is there anyone in here that could not say, that is my experience in the broken world that we live in? I don't think you can. There is a brokenness, a woundedness, a hurtness, a sometimes helplessness, a hurting that is experienced by living in the world we live in. An artist that I've learned to really enjoy, I've mentioned him a, a number of times in the last few months. Um, his name's Andy Gullihorn, and he does a lot of ministry to, uh, he does some ministry to addicts, he does ministry to those who've been abused, uh, to those who have gotten caught in uh, lifestyles of abuse. Um, and, and so his, his lyrics of his songs, they tend to, in, in my experience, they speak straight to the heart condition. And I don't think it's just to people who are, uh, struggling with overt addictions, it really he speaks to the human condition in a, in a really raw way. This is one of his lyrics that I, I wanted to read because I thought, immediately thought of this when I thought of the Good Samaritan. They're going to put it up on the screen behind me. He says this, if you want to love someone, search their soul for where it's broken. Find the cracks and pour your heart in if you want to love someone. As soon as I thought about the Samaritan, I thought, what is Jesus really getting at? He's saying real deep Love that produces radical generosity for your neighbor is when you are able to find level playing ground with human beings that are experiencing the same experience that you are in this broken world. And that rather than either A, ignoring them or being indifferent to them, or if you're married, for instance, rather than you seeing the brokenness of your spouse and pressing on that wound or accusing that wound, or, or constantly berating them for that woundedness that produces sinful behavior because it inconveniences you. Real love that produces radical generosity feels around in the soul of another for the cracks of brokenness and then pours their heart in to bind up those wounds. I, when, I, when I heard that lyric, I thought, that is Christ. This is what's happening with this good Samaritan, I think. He's physically doing what Christ is saying real love should motivate us to do. I think generosity in this way starts with embracing our humanity and leaving room for the humanity of other people. 
So when we often say we want to be generous to the hurting and the helpless, I'll just speak for myself. Sometimes my immediate question is, what has that person done to be in this situation, to be hurting or helpless? That will dictate my willingness to be generous to them. Anybody else ever get there? Yeah. That, that's, that's sometimes my inclination. Like if I know or at least I feel like you've done nothing wrong, I'm more apt to want to reach in and help you then. But if I have any inclination that maybe you made a dumb decision, maybe you put yourself in this position, then I'm more apt to hold my cards closer to the vest because why should I be generous to you? But I think what happens here is rather than the Samaritan passing by and saying, well, what did he do to deserve that? He said, I'm on the same road traveling alone. That could very well be me. You see, sometimes we think that when we look at others that are hurting and helpless, we forget that we're traveling the same road and that many times it could be us. Compassion for others is produced by this level playing field that God offers in the gospel. What's the really the beginning of the gospel? Well, you're created in the image of God. Sin has broken and marred everything, including you. Romans says it like this. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. What does God do right there? He says no matter your race, socioeconomic background, childhood story, personal narrative, job, bank account summary, reactions, actions, foolish actions, wise actions. He puts everyone on a level playing field and says this, everyone's a sinner in need of grace. Romans is really him saying Jew or Gentile, which really means Jew or anyone else. Sinful. And then that truth of us being all on the same playing field, if we finally find common ground at a soul level with other human beings, it's only then that we can be willing to share the uncommon blessings that perhaps we're experiencing in this moment of life. Let me tell you what that means. At this moment, this man, Samaritan, is healthy and whole with a camel and oil and wine and the finances to meet the need. And at this moment in time, this other man is not. That is what is uncommon about the two of them. But I think what the Samaritan recognizes is what's common about them is their humanity, and therefore he stoops and meets the need with what's uncommon because of what is common. Does this make sense? He is, he is operating out of compassion and not pride. So I think maybe one of the first things that might help us in our generosity to helpless is not to try and rationalize the what brought people to the circumstances that they are in, but actually to ponder the why is this happening. What do I mean? Maybe we shouldn't consider what someone else did to put them in a circumstance like this, but we should ask, why is God making this situation known to me at this moment? Perhaps it's because he wants me to step in. You ever thought of that? At this moment, it says here in Luke 10, by chance, this man happenstances upon. Well, we know Jesus doesn't believe in chance, right? Like, Jesus isn't... I feel like something's happening, Chris. <laughs> Jesus doesn't believe in chance. We believe in the providence of God. And so the question maybe we should ask is, is by the providence of God, has this hurting or helpless person been brought to my attention so that I might meet the need with whatever it is that God has equipped me with? We'll go on. It goes on, it goes on in verse 34. 
he went up to bind his wound, pouring oil and wine. And then he set him on his own animal, and he brought him to the inn, and he took care of him. So the next thing that we see here is he takes his possessions, he takes his time, and he meets the need of this man. So what we know is that the priest and the Levite most likely are on their way to uh, service at the temple. And so they don't want to stop because of two things. Number one, they don't want to stop because this man could be dead, and if they touch this man, they could be ritualistically unclean. And they don't want to go through the rites of cleansing, so I'd rather just be safe than sorry and pass by this man. The second reason they're passing by this man is because it'd be inconvenient timing-wise, even if this man is half dead, and so they don't want to stop for the sake of time. They have to serve God. They got something to do. Oh, no. Yeah, you can bring me that handheld. I want to stop scaring people. Test, test. Oh, let there be sound. And so what they do is they pass right by the man who's bleeding and hurting and dying. This convicted me because I thought, how many times have I passed by the very needs that Providence, not Providence Community Church, but the Providence of God, has set before me because I feel like I'm too busy doing the work of God to, to help someone in need. Now, I know that you might think, Court, that's unique to you in your, in your work because you're a pastor, but I have a job, and I would say to you, every one of us that have jobs, our jobs are meant to do what? What does the scripture say? Do all that you do unto the glory of God. So you work for God, and I work for God. We just get our paycheck from a different place. And so sometimes in our work for God, we pass by the very providential opportunities that are set before us. But what does the Samaritan do? Well, he does this. He gives up his possessions to the man who has been robbed of his possessions. So this man probably, I, I'm assuming here, but probably had a, had a means of travel, like maybe a camel or something, right? Well, he was robbed. So what does the Samaritan do? Here, you get on my camel, and I'll walk. So his possessions are given over. He gives up his time, his plans, and his schedules to meet the needs of the desperate man. Does anyone else have, find it difficult to give up your time, needs, and plans for something? Sometimes that's harder than giving money, isn't it? Like, if I could just give money and I could move on with my times, my plans, and my schedule, I'll sign up for that. But my time, my plans, my schedule, they are sacred to me. This man gives that, all of that up. And then lastly, he takes whatever steps are necessary to place the care of this man's needs above his own. So he just says, I'm going to care for this guy no matter what it takes. Okay. I think that in the Christmas season, it's so easy to justify why we don't have time to stop and cross the street. But I want to pose a question to you. Isn't it possible that maybe the Christmas season is kind of just an illustration of what our lives are already like anyway? Like, I, I know sometimes I'm like, man, the Christmas season's so busy. Can I tell you guys something? I'm always like that. Like, there's never been a time where someone's like, hey, how have things been going? I'm like, pretty slow. <laughs> Smooth sailing. Tell you what, what I have, tons of time. You got something, you need something? I got, I mean, I don't have anything on the slate. You know, no, I do. That's never been a thing for me. What, what is constant for me is I'm like, man, so much. In fact, while I'm talking to you, it's hard for me to focus on your face because I'm thinking of all the other stuff that I need to be doing. That's what happens to me. It is at a bare minimum, and this is a moment of honesty. Maybe you can find truth here for yourself. It's a bare minimum of annoying to me when someone tells me to slow down. Anybody else? Sometimes it's outright offensive. It's like, you know, Court, you should just slow down. Take some time. It's like, oh, good. I didn't think of that. <laughs> Finally, someone's told me what I needed to hear all my life. 
I should not take as many meetings. Yes. I should stop taking phone calls. You stop. And then what I want to say is, do you, so who will do that then? Who's going, this is the Martha moment, right? Mary's chosen the good portion. You should come kneel. And she's like, who's going to do the dishes? And I think she's kind of angry at Jesus. She's like, you are sitting there with a full stomach. I just fed you. And you're saying, Mary chose the good portion. That's fine. Okay. Nice. You ever had that moment? I think what it does, it's an indictment on my ability to schedule things well. Even deeper than that, it feels like it's a personal indictment on my capability to meet the pressing needs of the day. But here's what it really is, and Jesus does not shy away from this. What it really is, is a grace where you are lovingly reminded by God that life is more than what you're able to accomplish on your tasks list on an everyday basis. It's more than that. In the same way that Jesus says life is more than the abundance of your possessions, it's also more than what you do in order to acquire them. That there's more to our lives than merely like ants on an anthill running around, constantly working, working, working. As I drove, to, as I drove in this morning, I thought about it. I was a little bit tired. I didn't sleep all that well. And I thought, isn't it crazy that every single day, no matter how hard I work, depending upon your sleep schedule, this is true of year two, you two, no matter what, I have to lay down and go into a comatose state for hours and be completely helpless in order to even function the next day. Isn't that wild that God made us that way? I don't care how active you are. I don't care if you are a task list wizard. You will lay down and go into a helpless state where no, anyone could come up to you and do the worst thing, just thump you, you know, write stuff on you, all that stuff. It's crazy. It's shocking. And yet this is how God made us. Why? I think because in this text, what he's saying is the Samaritan, despite his busy schedule, he left room for the providence of God to turn his gaze elsewhere because life's more than his schedule. I think we need to remember God has a schedule too, and his task list always gets met. You and I, we're not going to meet all of our task lists. You know what you can go to bed feeling good about? God always finishes his task list. And therefore, perhaps a way away from anxiety would be stopping so bent on finishing yours and lean into learning to accept his. Okay, let's continue. The other thing before I move on to the next point, I think that what happens here is Jesus is saying, it's not just that we're generous with our time, it's not just we're generous with our possessions, it's not just that we're generous with our finances, it's that we're generous with everything because everything is God's. Does that make sense? It's not like we could say, well, that's not really how I give. I give with my time. I don't really give with my money. You ever heard that before? Okay. Or on the flip side, it's not that I just give with my money, but time is precious. I don't really give with that. Or I, I, give, I give financially and, and I give with my time, but my stuff is my stuff. Once I've bought it, it's kind of mine. So back off. Okay, here's what Jesus is saying. No, giving is all of those things or none of those things. It's not like we just get to pick and choose. Like sometimes people say, well, giving is my gift, and then they decide, well, it's this unique portion of giving. No, what I would say is that what that reveals to you is what probably is more of your idol than anything. Maybe your idol is your time. Maybe your idol is your money. Maybe your idol is your possessions. But whichever one is harder for you to give up is probably the thing that you trust more than anything. Okay, let's move on. I know that was quickly harsh. We're going to continue, though. <laughs> All right, what does he say next? says this, and the next day he took out two denarii, and he gave it to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay when I come back. 
I love this. So if the first thing that the, the generous man does is he binds up the wounds, heals. The second thing that he does is takes his possessions, time, and energy and gives it over to the man. The third thing he does is very practically foots the bill. He shows up and says, two denarii is like two days wages. And it says the next day he showed up to Jericho, which means that he already lost a day of work. He loses a day of work, pays two more days of wages. He gets three days wages and then says, I'm going to go to work. I'll be back and I'll pick up whatever incidentals he accrues. Whatever excess, I'll take care of it. He foots the bill for this guy. Doesn't even know him. What we find here is radical generosity doesn't withhold. Radical generosity doesn't look for opportunities to justify, but meets the need where it is. Okay. Finally, and I'll close with this. How do we cultivate a heart of generosity like this? This is how Jesus ends. He says this. Which do you think of these three proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? The lawyer said, the one who showed him mercy. Jesus said, you go and do likewise. I love that. I love that because Jesus, listen, I want to make this disclaimer because you probably heard this a number of times, but if you're a first-time guest, this is important for you to hear, so perk up. No one earns their salvation. There are no good works that you could conjure up in order to find right standing before God. It is freely given to you in all of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. None of us in this room are spending our lives, hopefully not, trying to earn what was given freely. However, I love that what Jesus says here is, hey, do you, do you want to love your neighbor and be generous? Go and do likewise. Like he doesn't say, okay, take this parable, go and meditate on it and figure out what it might work, how to work it out in your journal. Right? He doesn't just say, okay, theoretically, you know, parse this around with your home group. Figure it out. Really get in depth. Check out the Greek word study. See, whoa. It keeps getting worse. Like, I just need to go straight voice. I'm starting to get scared. What he doesn't say is, hey, you need to figure out how far it is from Jerusalem to Jericho and how many miles and how long the journey would be and then what exactly was going on. It's, all those things may be important. I think they can even be helpful. But I love that what Jesus says is when you hear the parable, the goal is go and do likewise. So the first thing I think we do to cultivate a, a heart of generosity is this. Practice these things. Take advantage of Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, the good works that God has already prepared beforehand so that we could walk in them. God is a good father. He sets the baseball on the tee. For some of us, it's a softball. For some of us, it's a beach ball. He hands us the bat. For some of us, it's a really big bat. For some of us, it is a tree trunk. And he says, hit the ball. And some of us are just so busy with our lives that we just are running to first base. I think practicing this is the first step. I wanted to mention to you a couple of really practical things that we've done as a church, as a staff, and as a volunteer, a lot of our volunteers, to make that available to you. The first thing is we have an orphan care team that is partnered with an organization called OCS, Orphan Care Solutions. And what they do is they care for foster children in our area. We've adopted the zip code 77346. We've said we want to own this zip code to care for foster children in this area. Just let us know what the needs are. They came to us and they said, there are 30 teenage boys that this Christmas will not have a gift to open on Christmas morning. Foster care. And so what we've said is, we want to meet that need. We just, we want to meet that need. 
that on Christmas morning, a teenage boy would wake up and have a gift and that it wouldn't say Providence Community Church on it, but it would, they would know the love of the Father, that God has not forgotten them, God will never forsake them, God cares for them, and we get to be a small part of that. Now, here's what's true no matter what. God cares for them and will provide the need. But you know what the good thing for us is? We get to be a part of it. We get to be a part of something like that. Here's what I promise you. God will take care of those children because he's a good dad. But what the invitation is for us is do you want to be a part? And I'll just be honest, I do. In our home groups, we have 11 home groups or 12 home groups. I'm terrible at this. I don't know. But every year we do community service projects. And so some of our home groups do Operation Christmas Child where they put gifts in a box and they send them all over the world for children that don't have gifts. Some of them, us, we partner with uh, in Conroe. It's called the Dream Center. It's for women who have been battered and hurt and they need a place to stay. And they have a big meal and we, and we look to serve and help with the meal that they do at Christmas time. They do an Advent service for these women that live there. Uh, every home group does something unique. And what we try to do is give our leaders the freedom to say, what is God laying before the people of your group in his providence that we might meet that need of the hurting around us. And here's the thing, guys. I think we're better together at this. There's no reason for you to have to go this alone. There's no reason for us to have to leave out of here and try to guess. Now, I want to say, sometimes God may put somebody in your path. Be generous. But I think when we're together, what an impact we can make is the body of Christ. We say we want to make the gospel unignorable. There's no better way to do that than generosity sometimes. Like, we will preach the gospel. But sometimes when the gospel comes and it lands on a heart that they have already experienced the generosity of the church, it's follow ground for harvest. So that's one way. But I want to close with the second and I think most important way that we cultivate generosity, and it's this. Reveling in the gospel truth that we give to the hurting and the helpless because we embrace that that is our estate before Christ saw us and had compassion on us. We are the hurting and the helpless. We are the needy ones. We were beaten near to death by Satan's sin in the world. We were left to die by all of the world's religious priests, by all of the world's politicians, by all of the world's best leaders, by everyone around us. We were headed for death. And Jesus came by and he saw us in our estate and he was moved by love and compassion. The story of the manger and Jesus coming to earth is there for one reason alone, and it's this. Jesus came to bind our wounds with his love, to heal us with the gospel of his grace. Where the Samaritan used oil and wine on the wounds of the man, Jesus poured his own blood to heal our wounds. He carried our broken and sinful bodies the length of the road all the way to Calvary. Everything that was Christ's, his righteousness, his peace with God, the hope of eternal life, everything that was Christ, he handed over to us. And then everything that was ours, what was ours? Our sinful stains, our enmity with God, our fear of judgment, we handed it over to Jesus and he took it upon himself. And then when we get to the cross, the accuser demands all these sinners should be on this cross. Jesus says, I'll lay on the cross for them. He stood in the way, he paid the heftiest price he looked to the Father, commends his spirit to him. And in doing so, he asked for a sign that the price was paid in full. When the Father accepted his spirit, he accepted the sacrifice. And like the Good Samaritan who said, I will pay even the excess, Jesus paid even our excessive sinfulness with his blood. 
We cultivate generosity by experiencing the generosity of God. And I want to say this to you, friends. Number one, remember that many times when we read the parables, we find ourselves as every character but the one we are. You ever see that? It's like we listen to this parable, like, oh, man, sometimes I'm the priest. That sucks. Oh, I'm the Levite. Or, oh, I'm the Samaritan. And what Jesus says is, no, you're the dying guy on the road that I came and picked up. That's what he's getting across to the lawyer. He's not saying you shouldn't be a priest or you shouldn't be a Levite or you should be a Samaritan, at least not first. He's saying, remember that you're the one on the side of the road and I am the one to pick you up, find your wounds, care for you, and meet every need you have. And so Christian, I wanna remind you, what will motivate and cultivate generosity in our hearts? It is only remembering our estate before Christ benefits. But there's a part two to that. And that part two is this. This morning, bring your needs to God because he has not stopped meeting. Should I just stop at this point? He has not stopped meeting the needs of his children. Don't withhold your hurts. Don't withhold your wounds. Here's what I know to probably be true without even knowing you, is this morning, it's hard even to consider meeting the needs of the hurting and the helpless if you yourself find that as a descriptor of you. I also know without knowing you that many of us walk in here with the veneer of being perfect and deep down you are hurting. And so what I wanna encourage you with is that as we consider generosity to those that are hurting and helpless, bring your hurt Bring your wounds to Christ who loves you and be healed. Because what he does is not only bind up your wounds and heal you, but then he sends you and says, go and do likewise. So rather than running to first base without hitting the ball, I want to encourage you, bring your needs to Jesus this morning. And as you come and take communion, may he meet us there. Amen. You'll stand to your feet. Father, what a loving and kind and gentle God you are. Holy Spirit, we ask you now to silence the accuser's voice in our hearts. Oh God, we, we know where we are repressive. We know where we struggle with generosity. Even those of us who are so keen to hide it, Lord, we know deep down where we don't trust you. But Lord, we also know that it's deep down in the woundedness, the hurts, and the difficulties of our own soul, the sin that we hide away. It's there that produces our mistrust. And so before we look to make your gospel unignorable by being generous, first we want to come and experience the power of your gospel by bringing our needs and our hurts and our wants to you. In this Advent season, we say we long for you, Jesus. 
but also we say, we need you now. So meet us here, Lord, as we come and take communion, meet us here. We pray in Jesus' name.